John 14, page 901. We will not make it very far today. Verses 1 through 3 are all we're going to consider, mostly verse 1, uh, for these verses are far too important. Uh, John 3.16 is clearly the most known and used verse in the Bible. It would also be up there as one of the most misunderstood and misused verses of the Bible. John 14.6 is arguably the most important verse in this book. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Many commentators have called that verse the core statement of this entire gospel. And so we're going to give it much attention next week. But... John 14.1 is an overlooked and underrated contender for both most used verse in the Bible and least used verse in the Bible. What do I mean by that? How about most quoted but maybe least applied? How is John 14.1 one of the most quoted verses in the Bible? Well, I just quoted it the week before last at our brother Leroy Jackson's funeral, which, as you're looking at the verse, if you think about it, Sounds a little cold and crazy. There has been a death. Death is the king of terrors. That was our context last Tuesday evening. And so there I was standing before a woman who just lost the man that she has been married to for 56 years. The two children who have just lost their father. Many friends and families who have just lost their loved one. And I dared say to them, let not your hearts be troubled. How is that not pastoral abuse? I am not alone in my use of this verse in that context. It is its regular use in almost every Christian funeral that makes John 14.1 at least a contender for one of the most used verses in the Bible. But why do we use this verse in that context? Death is the most troubling context that there is. How dare we speak into the trouble by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. And of course, we know that we bring into this room, there are all sorts of other types of trouble as well. Life often is little more than trouble. We've been seeing it as we've worked through the Psalms. Uh, Henry just read it for us in Psalm 12. Save, help, O Lord, for the godly are gone. The faithful have vanished. Everyone speaks lies, flattery, deception, pride. The poor are plunder. The needy groan. The wicked prowl on every side. Vileness is exalted among men. Trouble. Such psalms are generally categorized as psalms of lament, but they very much could be categorized as psalms of trouble. Life is trouble. Job 5, 7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. How often do sparks fly upward? Always. It is the nature of sparks to fly upward. Man is born to trouble always. It is the nature of man to be born to trouble. I have a handful of quotes that I love and I probably use too much. I know that. Oh, well. But one of them is one of my favorites, and it's from The Princess Bride. Life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. This is one of the main things that I love about the Scriptures. The Scriptures are not selling something. The Scriptures take very seriously the pain and trouble of life in this fallen world. Your pain and your trouble as you face life with a fallen heart in this fallen world. There is nothing as soberingly realistic about the human condition as the Scriptures. Is your heart troubled? Just be honest with one another and ourselves. It is. We would all of us raise our hands to some degree or another. All of us bring into this room a troubled heart. Some of us are good at ignoring a troubled heart, distracting ourselves from it, self-medicating away our troubles. Some of us are constantly confronted with and consumed by the reality of our troubles and a troubled heart, often brought on uh, by these very difficult circumstances. For some of us, our trouble pales in comparison to the amount of trouble faced and felt by others. And so here's the troubling question that we'd sometimes prefer not to face. What do we do? What can be done, if anything? And 
is what are we to do and can be done different for those of you who have and are facing truly troubling circumstances. That, that, that sometimes just feels like an entirely different class of trouble. Sometimes it just feels like no one else has, has experienced such trouble. An old, old African-American spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Most famous version of that is probably Louis Armstrong's. He eventually settled, lived, and died and was buried over here in Corona, Queens. You probably, sadly, most know the song from The Lion King. But doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Nobody else knows. Nobody else has seen the trouble that I've seen and felt. And so what do I do? Is there anything that can be done for and with my troubled heart? Of course, I'm going to say yes, <laughs> there is. I have wonderfully good news for you this morning. Jesus has wonderfully good news for you this morning. Though I also know and expect that many may not like uh, the prescription that Jesus offers here. I'm fully prepared to be told that I'm a miserable comforter this morning. I'm all right with that. I'm ready for it. But Jesus has for us here the eminently comforting word and the medicine that we need if we can just hear it and if we are just willing to actually actively take it to trust him. For that is his answer. His answer is not easy, but it is quite simple. I would argue that for many of us, our problem is not that we have tried his answer and found it wanting, but that most of us have not actually truly tried his answer. And so the sermon is simple. Faith is the solution to trouble. Trouble's solution is trust. But I think we still tend to think primarily of faith as the initial saving faith. Next week will be that, saving faith. This week, sustaining faith. Next week will be more the objective. This week, I want to look more at the subjective. It is not just through faith that we are saved, but also sustained. It is not just through faith that we are cured, but comforted. Faith is the solution, both to our objective, eternal heart trouble and our subjective Every day, this life, heart, trouble. I think maybe we often just don't know how to take what we profess that we believe and then actually apply it to the nitty-gritty of the troubles of this life. And so I hope to try and get practical and do that this morning with these three simple but profound verses. Nothing fancy today. The title of your sermon is the three points of your sermon. We're simply going to work through trouble and trust, and then we're going to bring it all home. Is your heart troubled? Trust is the solution to all your troubles. Home is the end and hope of all your troubles. Let's read this wonderfully short and beautiful text. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. That's it. But pay attention. These are important words. And these are the words that God wants to say to you on this day. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let's stop there. Let's pause. Let's pray. Let's ask for God to help us in this time. Bow with me. Father, many of us are facing many troubles. Father, many of us have very troubled hearts. Father, show us Christ. Father, it's so easy to forget what is most important and what is most true in the midst of our troubles. And so we ask that you would now give us eyes to see we ask that you would comfort our troubled hearts, and we ask that you would do it through your word. Father, help me do in this time what I cannot do. Please now work in our troubled hearts by your spirit through your word. Show us that there is great and infinite and eternal comfort to be found in whatever it is that we may be facing in this life. Father, teach us how to use your word. Teach us what it truly means to trust you day to day and moment by moment as we face this fallen and difficult world and life in it. 
Father, please now, we ask that you would work through your word. We ask that you would comfort and encourage your saints. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, quite simply, we start with the trouble. Uh, One of the most famous lines from the whole of Shakespeare's many works comes from Act 4, Scene 1 of Macbeth. Shakespeare sets the scene with the simple directions. A dark cave in the middle, a cauldron boiling. Thunder. Effective. What an effective economy of words. Enter then the three effectively creepy witches. They are singing, they are chanting around this pot as they brew their deadly poison, coming back to the famed refrain, double, double, toil and trouble. I often rehearse it in my head in the midst of trouble as trouble, trouble, toil and trouble. For that is often how life feels. The meaning would be the same. That's what the double, double means. The witches represent evil. They are the agents of chaos. They are instigating. They are multiplying trouble. It's not just toil and trouble. It's double toil and trouble. They're the ones who plant the evil idea into Macbeth's mind that he could and should be the king, which means that he first needs to kill the king and his friend, Duncan. And it is from that point that everything falls apart and all the trouble begins. They are the agents of trouble. But it's as Macbeth approaches them again in Act 4, Scene 1, the witches chant. Filet of a finny snake in the cauldron, boil and bake, eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, for a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth, boil and bubble, double, double toil and trouble. It's a brilliant and dark scene. But Shakespeare following scripture, gets that life is full of toil and trouble. Jesus gets that life, his life, and the life of his disciples uh, and those to follow them is going to be full of toil and that there will be great temptation to be greatly troubled, troubled by all the trouble that is to come. And so he opens our passage, let not your hearts be troubled. And in so doing, we open a new chapter. I haven't said it yet. How can I not? It's John 14. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And what a start to this chapter. It's because of how it starts that this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. For Jesus does hear the very thing that we are often specifically told not to do. Jesus tells the troubled not to be troubled. And so we start there. In one way, this chapter break here from moving from 13 to 14 is not particularly helpful for what we are considering now is directly connected to all that we've been considering in chapter 13. But on the other hand, there is a clear break and shift here. The last verse of chapter 13, if you look at it, in verse 38, we see Jesus talking specifically and individually to Peter. Will you, singular in the Greek, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, singular in the Greek, the rooster will not crow until you, singular in the Greek, have denied me three times. Well, now, all of a sudden, in 14.1, we read, don't let the heart of you all, plural, in the Greek, be troubled. And so Jesus has turned from addressing Peter individually to addressing the disciples corporately. All of you, the remaining 11, remember Judas has departed, the remaining 11, you all, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why would Jesus be saying that to them here? Well, it must be because he, the God-man, the all-knowing, omniscient one, who has been demonstrating that supernatural insight throughout all of this, knows that their hearts are troubled. Jesus is not addressing their potentially troubled hearts. He's addressing their actually already troubled hearts. And why would their hearts be troubled? Well, remember our context, quick Review. Look back to the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1. Remember the beautiful beginning to this whole section. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So again, remember, love is our ultimate context. We're going to come back to it again and again throughout this farewell discourse. But love is the best. Love is what we all want and need. What is troubling about love? Well, there's another opening 
There's another word in those opening words. He loved them to the end. That's more of a troubling word. And the words preceding that double love when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. That's why they are troubled. And remember then all that transpires in chapter 13 after that. Remember what a disciple is. A disciple is fundamentally a follower. These young men have given up everything. Their livelihood. Their lives to follow Jesus. And for the last three years they've literally followed him everywhere. They've listened to everything he has said. Done everything he has said to do. They've become convinced that he is the one who was to come. He's the Messiah. The Savior. He's their everything. They've pinned their hopes, their future, their lives entirely upon him. And he has just said in 1333, yet only for a little while longer will I be with you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Said it again in verse 36. Where I'm going, you cannot follow. And remember, that's not all. He's just told them that one of them is going to betray him. And then Judas leaves. He's just told them that Peter is going to deny him. Peter, the rock, the leader, the best of the bunch, if he's going to deny the departing Jesus, what hope is there for the rest of them? So, betrayal, denial, death, don't be troubled. What? How is Jesus not here the master, miserable comforter? We're getting there. But first, I want you to note that Jesus notes their trouble. Let's be clear first on what Jesus is not doing and not saying. He is not dismissing their trouble. He's acknowledging it. His solution is not to deny that they have any reason to be troubled. That's kind of what's at the heart of miserable comfort. The, the, The dismissal and denial of that which truly is troubling. This is not... Bobby McFerrin, 1988, in every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy now. So this is a really poppy, catchy, peppy song from my childhood. And McFerrin's right. Worry is worthless. It does nothing but double the trouble. Jesus himself says, Matthew 6.25, do not be anxious. But the problem with McFerrin's advice, if you go back and listen to it and read the lyrics, is that he, he trivializes the trouble. Oh, you got trouble? Nah, no big deal. Don't worry about it. Just be happy. He, he diminishes and he dismisses the trouble. And then even worse, you can go through all the lyrics. He gives you no real how or no real why you should not, be, should not worry. And Scripture never does that. Scripture is painfully realistic. Let's be honest. You have plenty of reasons to worry. I am raising five little girls in this culture. I have plenty of reasons to worry. The disciples have plenty of reasons to worry. We've been seeing in the Psalms that David has plenty of reasons to worry as he faces all kinds of trouble. And the Bible faithfully records and reports all David's honest struggle with all of that trouble. Remember Psalm 10.1, we saw David saying, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We've all felt it. We've all asked that. At some point, time of trouble, where are you? Why does it seem like you're hiding? Psalm 6.6, we saw David, the king, say, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Verse 2, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Verse 3, my soul is also greatly troubled. And by the way, haven't we just recently read those exact words? John 12, 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. Taking Psalm 6, 3, quoting it. We saw in 13, 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. We saw back in 1133, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And so the first thing you need to notice is that Scripture takes your trouble very seriously and that Jesus knows about troubled hearts. Jesus understands troubled hearts. It is no accident that three times in John leading up to our verse, we read, Jesus is troubled, Jesus is troubled, Jesus is troubled. And then we read the exact same word for the fourth time, let not your hearts be troubled. And so we're already starting to move toward our answer and solution to trouble. We're seeing that it must have something to do with Christ's trouble. The one who is saying to us, let not your heart be troubled, had his own heart very much troubled. And there's a lot that we can draw just from that. But again, for now, all I want you to see is that Scripture takes trouble seriously. Scripture never minimizes trouble. It never tells us, don't worry, be happy. It never says, grin and bear it. It never says, just get over it. And we know that because here we see quite quite clearly Christ himself quite troubled. And as John has been going out of his way to make it clear that this Jesus is both man and God, he's God himself, come in the flesh, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that whatever the answer is, whatever the solution to all this is, we can at least know for a fact that God cares about our trouble. Because in Christ we have God himself coming and entering into our ultimate trouble. And there is much comfort in trouble in that one fact right there. And so yes, life is full of trouble. You have faced or you are facing or you will soon be facing much trouble. Expect it. Don't be shocked by it or caught off guard by it. We as Christians just never say, wait a second, what's going on here? Trouble. Scripture tells us again and again and again, persecution will come, trouble will come, difficulty will come. And so the scriptures take your trouble seriously. But even better, the scripture provides a, I would argue, the only solution to that trouble. Point number two. Let's get to the main idea. Let's get to the trust. Surely it's not that simple. Well, actually it is. It's simple, yes. Easy, no, not at all. But why trust and and what is that? One of the main things I want to discuss here is how do we actually do that? We usually, all right, you got trouble? All right, trust God. Let's pray. Let's not do that. But first, as we sort out the how, we've got to get a little Greek and grammar out of our way. Go back to the text. Look look at verse 1 again. Listen to it. Jesus doesn't leave it at let not your hearts be troubled, period. He tells them how and why. And the how is first. Believe in God. Believe also in me. First, note the footnote. You see that little one there after believe in God. It's in the ESV, at least. Follow that to the bottom of the page where you'll see, or you believe in God. What's going on here? Greek and grammar. Greek is a highly inflected Language. I think that sounds cool. Inflected language. Many of you who are much cooler than I am speak multiple languages and you are familiar with this. Uh, Latin, too, was a highly inflected language. The various Romance languages that come from Latin, Spanish, Italian, they're also uh, far more inflected languages than in, than in English. When we talk about inflection, we simply mean that the form of a word changes based upon how it functions grammatically in a sentence. So, for example, in English, we have little inflection. We say, I love, you love, he loves. That's it. That's the inflection. There's a little S. One line. We love, you all love, they love. Love, 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 love. It's all, love is all the same. The form of the verb stays the same, except that one little S. In Latin, however, CC students, can you do it? Are you already rehearsing it in your head? It's different. It's not the same verb in the same form the whole way. It's amo, amas, amat, amamus, amatus, amant. You got that wrong, CC students. You need to study. See, you see how amo means I love. Amas means he loves. Uh, or no, you love. Amat means uh, he or she loves. See, the word is different based upon how it functions grammatically. That's inflection. The different endings tell you if the word singular or plural, first, second, third person. See, grammar is fun, right? You guys love grammar. Tabitha, you don't have to shake your head so aggressively, Tabitha. Uh, the point of all of that is that in the Greek, 
The indicative and imperative forms of the verb believe are identical. They're exactly the same. And we're talking about verb mood here, how the speaker wants us to understand the verb. Indicative is a statement of fact. You do believe. Imperative as a statement of command. You believe. One tells us what is true. One tells us what to do. And grammatically, the Greek in verse 1 could be either one. And so we have two statements with the exact same verb in the exact same form repeated twice. So there are four ways that you could translate this statement. Double indicative. You believe in God. You believe also in me. Or it could be one and one, a mix. You believe in God will believe also in me. Or believe in God. You also believe in me. That one makes no sense. It can't be that one. Or the double imperative that the ESV goes with. Double command. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And again, I think the ESV is right here. I think the double imperative is most likely. Double indicative doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jesus has just given them an imperative. Remember, this this is a command. It's not like, hey, it'd be a good idea if you didn't have a troubled heart. Jesus says, command, don't be troubled. That's an imperative. And so it makes sense that the how of another imperative would follow. The context demands an encouragement and an exhortation. Don't be troubled. Here's how. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so it's the simplest to take the two identical verbs identically, and it's most likely that the context requires we take them as commands. Believe, as the ESV says. But our second point is not believe, it's trust. Why? Well, This word, if you remember, is one of John's favorite words, and this is the most important verb in the whole book. And we have seen it and considered it again and again. Pistuo, often translated as believe or have faith. Remember, biblically, faith and belief, have faith, believe, all the same thing. And John uses this one verb 98 times in his gospel, almost half of the uses of this verb in the whole New Testament are found in John. John is the apostle of faith. And what's interesting is that while John uses this one verb 98 times, he doesn't use the noun pistis once. 98 to zero. Faith is always a verb in John. John seems to want to emphasize the dynamic, active nature of true faith. And it is internally important that we get this verb right, for this is the book. This is why the book is here. 2031. I don't know how many times I've read this verse. 2031, purpose statement. This is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John directly connects believing in life. Believing is the means to living. That means you miss the belief, you miss the life. You get belief wrong, you get death. And that's why John 14.1 is such a helpful verse, for it clarifies much of the confusion around what faith is. It is just tragically too often taught that faith is no more than believing that or believing about. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yep. Yay, you're saved. See you later. And then you'll have folks that, you know, maybe profess to be Christians, and then you'll see them at church maybe once every month or two, and they seem to have little actual care and concern for Christ. He seems to have little actual effect or impact on their actual life. Now, praise God that I am not God, and only God can see the heart, but we have no reason to believe that such people are actually believers, but that is simply not what faith is, and that is not what faith does. And 14.1 helps to make that clear. Think about it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What would it really mean were Jesus saying simply, hey, you know, don't be troubled. You know, believe some facts about God. Believe some facts about me. Might not be the most comforting and encouraging word. That's why I actually like the New Living Translation here. And I almost never say that. Um, But it says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. And trust also in me. For that is what faith ultimately is. And that is what faith ultimately does. 
Yes, faith is knowledge. Yes, faith starts with knowing the truth about Jesus. Yes, it is then assent. It is, it is agreeing. Okay, this is what it says about who Jesus is. I agree. I believe that that's true. It's knowledge and it's uh, assent. And lots of people have that. That's not faith. For the third component of faith is the key. And it is the trust. Remember, faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. K-A-T, knowledge, assent, and trust. And that's the component that Christ must be emphasizing here. Brothers, don't be troubled. Trust me. Trust God. Trust also in me. That's an implicit claim to deity, by the way. Trust in him. Trust in me. For, as we'll see in verse 11, I am in him and he is in me. Listen, great trouble. Denial, betrayal, death, their deaths are coming, and Jesus says, quite simply, trust me. Trouble's solution is trust. Biblical belief is a working relationship of trust. What is trust? Well, trust is confidence. Trust is a firm, settled belief in someone's trustworthiness and confidence. That this person can and will do what they say. I was trying to think of an illustration. Uh, I thought of Tessa. I thought of when, when little, trembling, four-year-old Tessa is standing on the side of a pool, unable to swim, afraid, and I reach out my hands and I look her in the eyes and say, Tessa, trust me. Tessa, jump. What am I saying? I'm saying, I will catch you. I will carry you. I will hold you up. I will keep you from drowning. And more than that, we will have lots of fun. We will swim and play and splash, and you will be safe because you will be in my arms. It doesn't matter that you can't swim. It doesn't matter that four feet of water to her is no different than a thousand feet of water. Depths and deeps and terror to her, Tessa, it doesn't matter that you would drown and die in this water without me. For I am here. I've got you. Tessa, trust me. And so she looks at the the water, she looks at her father, and she leaps. That's faith. That's trust. She is confident that her father can and will do what he has said. And so here Jesus says, so much more significantly than a silly illustration, whatever it is that you are facing, your everything falling apart, relationships collapsing, financial difficulty, health constantly being sick, it seems, death approaching, Jesus says, trust me. Trust me. It's so simple. But the very question we're considering is, what does that really mean? Easy to say. Easier said than done. What what does it look like? Again, we're going to consider more the objective side of this, initial saving faith, next week when we consider Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. But Christ here is talking to believers. And he says, believe in me. He's talking to those who have trusted him. And he says, trust me. So he's talking here about the day-to-day subjective living out the trust that saves. Faith is not just for the beginning, but the whole thing. Faith is not just the means through which we are saved from the ultimate trouble of hell, but the means through which we are sustained in every trouble of life. And we know that faith is a gift. We're great as Reformed folks. We get our theology right. We know that even the faith by which we believe is a grace of God. And we know that it's, it's a passive thing in the sense that faithly, faith simply means uh, that we receive Christ through it. That's all true. But we often stop there. There also, then, is very much an active dimension of faith. Faith does something. We do something. We exercise faith. Throughout Hebrews 11, the famous hall of faith. Again and again, you'll read the same thing. You'll read something like, by faith, Abel offered. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Moses refused. And so on. By faith, some verb. By faith, they acted. Do you know how to act and exercise faith in the face of trouble? Do you know how, when the trouble comes, to actually go about 
taking that trouble to Christ and trusting Christ in the midst of that trouble. Again, here's where I think that maybe we tend to be weak. I want you to think with me for a moment now. None of us, none of us like trouble. None of us like trouble. I've been sick for like forever. I don't know, forever. That's what it feels like. I don't like being sick. It's, it's not fun. Christ seems to be saying that trust is trouble's solution here. But what we've got to understand is that trust is not, trust is never something that just happens to us. You, nothing comes from nothing. Remember our grammar. This is an imperative. Christ is telling us. He's commanding us to do something. We have an active role to play and a responsibility to take in the face of our trouble to do this thing, whatever it is that he is telling us, to trust him. He's telling us to do something. Go back to the text. I want you to notice something important. This will help with the how. Notice what he says. He says, let not your heart be troubled. The word is uh, cardia in the Greek. That's where we get our word cardiac, the heart. But much of our problem starts here. Much of our problem starts with the heart. And it starts first with our misunderstanding of the heart, of what it is. In his 800 uses in Scripture, this word heart never once refers to this central blood-pumping organ here in our chests. Never once refers to the, the physical heart. In Scripture, it's always used figuratively. But, again, here's the problem. It's not used as we use it figuratively today. We think heart, we think feels. We think emotions. Head, think, heart, feel. No! That is not how Scripture thinks. In Scripture, the heart is simply our center. The heart is who we are internally. It is the seat of of our spiritual life. Yes, the heart feels, and it wills, chooses, and does, and it thinks everything internally. It's the heart. Back in John 12, 40, we heard the prophecy from Isaiah about Israel's hardness of heart. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and, catch this, understand with their heart. See, the heart is the organ of understanding. In Luke 21, 14, we read Jesus say, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate or think beforehand how to answer. Yeah, you see that word mind? You hear that word mind there? You know what it is in the Greek? Cardia. It's the word heart. In Luke 24, 25, the angel at the tomb rebukes the disciples, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. And so it's the heart that believes. And in 2438, Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? Same word as our passage. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? And so we understand with the heart, we doubt with the heart, we believe with the heart. We don't have time for this. The point is, in Scripture, based on how we use the terms today, the heart is the mind. We need to stop thinking here. We need to start thinking here when we think heart. When Jesus says, don't let your heart slash mind be troubled, trust me, he's telling them to think. In commanding them to exercise their faith, he is commanding them to exercise their mind, for it is the mind that is the organ of faith. And similarly, as Paul transitions to the application section of Romans, he begins, 12.2, summarizes the whole that is to follow. He commands, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And again, the mind thinks. And thinking depends upon words. You are always taking in words. You are always thinking about words. You are always trusting in something. Jesus is telling us to face the troubles of your life, you must learn to trust him by taking in his words and then learning to trust him through his words. Trust in me is a call and a command to us to actively take ourselves in hand, face our troubles, and fight those troubles and interpret those troubles through a deliberate strengthening of our faith through the exercise of our minds with God's word. 
And the Puritans were just the masters of this. They have rightly been called soul physicians. And this, this is exactly how they do it. I just finished a book yesterday on how Richard Baxter counseled the depressed. They called it melancholy uh, back then. And in the introduction, J.I. Packer summarizes the three basic perspectives that pervade Baxter's always practical writing. And Packer says that the first main perspective, the main thing is this in Baxter's writings, it's the primacy of the mind. All truth enters the soul via understanding. All motivation begins in the mind as one contemplates the realities and possibilities that then draw forth affection and desire. All fellowship with Christ, the mediator, also begins in the mind with knowledge of his undying love and present risen life. All obedience begins in the mind with recognition of revelation concerning God's purpose and will. Calls to consider, to think, uh, and to so get God's truth clear first in one's head is basic to everything. That's, that's so good. But more important than what Baxter says is what the Bible says. We've just seen the call to the renewal of the mind. We've considered repeatedly Paul's command to think about these things. And this is precisely what we see David doing throughout the Psalms. We've been talking a lot about meditation. The blessed man meditates on God's law, his word, day and night. This is what we mean. Do you know how to talk to yourself? Do you know how to take yourself in hand and to face your troubles with God's truth, trusting in God's Son? Turn to Psalm 42. Let's look at one example of this. Psalm 42, page 469. Psalm 42. Many think that David is still the author here. I'm inclined to agree with them. I think this is David. I can't prove that. Psalm 42, in verse 2, we see that there's separation. Look at verse 3. There we see there's sadness. How is this not David? (coughs) Excuse me. My tears have been my food day and night. There's the trouble. Look at what David does in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. That's prayer. He's talking about prayer. These things I remember as I pray. So David is engaging his mind. He's recalling. He's fixing it on the past and uh, some of what he knows to be true. Now look at verse 5. Here it is. I love this. Learn to do this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. There's the trouble. Therefore, I remember you. That's the basic idea in brief. You see how David is talking to himself? There's David, and here's David talking to his soul. David is experiencing and feeling something, and now David is engaging his mind with that something. Oh, my soul, you are cast down, but why? Why are you cast down? Hope in God. Very similar to Christ's word. Don't be troubled. Trust in God. And then you see David go on to remind himself that this God is his God and his salvation. He's rehearsing and remembering that which is true to to shore up his mind as he faces this trouble. He deals with trouble with truth. This is how we retrain our brain and renew our mind. This is how we trust. We learn to take God's word and we learn to work it into our heart. We take God's word and we learn to apply it specifically to our troubles and our troubled feelings. Listen, words work. Words are weapons. Learn to wield them. Many non-Christian studies have shown that the simple exercise of writing out your thoughts And putting words to your feelings almost immediately diminishes negative emotions. But here's the advantage we have. Here's the difference. We are not talking here about mere words. We are talking specifically here about God's words. God's inspired, living, and active 
words. God's words which are eternal life. God's words which are able to make you complete and wise unto salvation. God's words which work, which God himself works through. And even better, we're not doing this alone. Listen, this, this is no mere power of positive thinking. Right? Just think, just think happy, just be positive and everything will be better. No, that, that doesn't work. But this is similar and eternally better. This is the power of gospel thinking. This is the power of spirit-empowered thinking. Because if you are in Christ, then the spirit is in you. And he is the spirit of wisdom and power. He is the comforter, Jesus is about to tell us. And he works. And he works effectively through God's words. God's word can entirely transform your experience of trouble and troubling thoughts and troubling feelings if you can learn to use it. And again, don't believe me. Believe Jesus. That's exactly what he's saying here. Trust me. Trust me. Trust my word. And that means, first, you must know that word. And you must know how to use that word. We so frequently try to face our troubles entirely on our own with no regard to God's word and God's promise and God's spirit and God's presence. There's no, no, no wonder we're troubled and, and miserable. Do you know how to do this? I had, I had big plans here, but man, I'm, I'm so frustrated. I'm incapable of explaining anything quickly. We just need more time. I'm going to move to a Caribbean church because all our Caribbean people told me they do like two and three hour sermons. And so I need, I need two and three hour sermons, guys. We just need more time. I had this big six-step thing I wanted to walk through. We don't have time. I failed. We'll, we'll do it on another point. Let me give you just kind of one quick example of this, and then, Lord willing, we'll, we'll try to come back and talk about this more. Three weeks ago, I stood right here in this pulpit. I was preaching on John 13, 34, love one another. Yeah, another imperative. Jesus, Jesus commands you, love each other. He commands you, don't be troubled. I, I love Jesus. That's a beautiful, humbling word. And again, I, I am not very loving, and I know that. And in the sermon, I read through 1 Corinthians 13. That chapter just destroys me. And then I actually said this. Does anyone remember this? I read the chapter, and then I said, that's love. And then I said, I said this is a command, an imperative. I said, memorize that and use that. Anybody? Anybody do it? Uh, two weeks later, last Sunday, I preached that exact same sermon at First Baptist. And as I'm preaching it, as I'm in the middle of getting all worked up about 1 Corinthians 13, ripping me apart and, and reading 1 Corinthians 13, then I say, that's love. Memorize that and use that. I think you'd be amazed at how much thinking and doing I can be doing here while also preaching. How many other things I'm thinking and going through and wondering about and while still working through a manuscript. And so last Sunday, I kept going through my manuscript, while at the same time, it was like the Holy Spirit was putting a finger right into my heart. I mean, two weeks ago, I said the words to you, memorize that and use that. And it wasn't until I said the exact same words two weeks later that I was bowled over, which is the realization and understanding that I myself did neither of those things. Hypocrite. And I know that I struggle with love, 1 Corinthians 13 is like the love chapter. I said, hey, you guys, you should memorize and you should use that love chapter. And then I did nothing for two weeks. You better believe I started memorizing 1 Corinthians 13 last Monday. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I wrote it down just in case I messed up. I'm only like seven verses in so far. I'm slow. But here's what I'm doing. I'm regularly doing this with Psalm 1, 16, 103, Philippians 2, Ephesians 2, and Romans 8. Those are my, that's my go-to bag. Those are my go-to passages that I have memorized and I use again and again and again. Right now, I'm, using, I'm doing it with 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. And stop, stop there. That, that's, that's all that I need right now. I am so often impatient and unkind. You know how easy it is to tell your kids impatiently to be patient? <laughs> and to unkindly tell them, hey, be nice to each other. And to say it unkindly? So dumb. 
And so right now, when I'm feeling impatient and unkind with people, when I'm dealing with the trouble that often is people, when I am transitioning from work to family time, I am repeating and I am rehearsing, love is patient and love is kind. When I, am, when I have acted impatiently and unkindly, when someone is frustrating me and I'm tempted to uh, snipe back, I am taking myself in hand and examining, wait a second, what, what, why am I, hold on, why am I thinking and feeling what I am? Why am I feeling grumpy and frustrated? What, what cause is, what are the facts of this situation? What am I feeling and why am I feeling that thing? And do I have any right to be thinking and feeling what I am? And then I'm taking 1 Corinthians 13.4 and applying it to that. I'm taking John 13.34, love others as Christ loved me. Then love is patient and love is kind. And then I am talking to myself, I do not get to be impatient and unkind to this individual. Because Christ has been and always will be perfectly patient and kind to me. And then when I am grumpy, I am taking verse 6, love is not irritable. I hate that one. I think that one's in there specifically for me. And I am reminding myself, I do not get to be grumpy because of God's grace. I don't have to be grumpy because of God's grace. And so I'm then taking and using that word, reminding myself, meditating upon it, thinking about it, and then I am praying that word and the trouble that I'm facing and the trouble that I'm feeling in response. I'm taking it all to the Lord, and in so doing, I am actively seeking to exercise my faith and to trust in And listen, it works the exact same for whatever trouble it is that you are facing. Most of these are silly and and somewhat humorous examples. They're actually not. They're they're, they're serious. Sin is always serious. Whatever it is, God has a word and God has a promise. He has told you something that applies to your situation. Do you have verses that remind you of his sovereignty? Do you have verses, Psalm uh, 103, that remind you that like a father shows compassion to, the, to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him? Do you know how to use the fact that God is sovereign and God is good, and so here is trouble, and this feels out of control, and this feels really, really bad. I have experienced loss. Do you know how to take that and then remind yourself that God is in control? That God is good, that God has promised that he is working all things for my good so that this thing, whatever it is, no matter how bad it feels in Christ, he has guaranteed that he is going to ultimately bring good for me out of this thing. Wouldn't that transform how we face trouble if we were to learn how to do that in him? Church, you have all kinds of trouble and you have so many reasons to be troubled, but you have much better reason not to be troubled in Christ. Trust in him. J.C. Ryle says in this passage, faith in the Lord Jesus is the only sure medicine for troubled hearts. To believe more thoroughly, to trust more entirely, to rest more unreservedly, to lay hold more firmly, to lean back more completely, this is the prescription which our master urges on the attention of all his disciples. Sharon Moultrie's favorite verse. Can't wait to have them back this week. Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. What a verse. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Verse 4. Here's the command. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Listen, trust is the solution to all your trouble. Point number three, and we'll just come back to this next week. Let me just read it and touch on it, and then we'll be done. Trust is the solution to all your troubles. Uh, Home is your hope in all your troubles. Let me at least read two and three. Look at them. I'll be fast. In my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Home. Home is your hope. And your home in Christ is guaranteed. What does it mean that Jesus goes to prepare a place? Oh, he's going to the Father. The Father is in heaven. Heaven is perfect. There is nothing to be prepared there. What is he really preparing? 
Well, next week, come. But he's preparing the way there. He's preparing our way there. He's not as much preparing the place as he's preparing the people for the place. For where is Jesus going? He is going to the cross. And he is going to die. Why? Because heaven is perfection. Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, heaven is a world of love, a holy world of love, and sinners cannot go to a holy world. And so the holy Christ goes to the cross so that sinners can be counted holy in him. You see, he prepares the place by taking our place and taking on our sin and taking on our death penalty for that sin so that we could be made new, washed, forgiven, and restored to relationship with the God who is literally life. He is promising you heaven here. He is promising that he himself will do all the work that is required to secure your eternity. And then he tells you that he will come again for you. And catch this, note how he puts it, not to take you to the house or to heaven or to home. He says, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's home. Jesus is promising us. He is guaranteeing that for us. That's why you don't have to be troubled. That's why we're right, gently and lovingly and compassionately, in a funeral for a believer to recite Romans 14.1 and say, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's why you can and should trust in him. Look at the cross. Look at what he's done for you there. Look at heaven. Look at what awaits you there. This light and momentary is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. This, whatever your trouble is, no matter how bad it is, and we don't want to minimize it, will feel like nothing compared to this. Perfect rest. Perfect peace. Perfect fellowship with the God of full joy and perfect pleasure forevermore. That's what Christ is promising. Trouble? Why would you be troubled? He's saying, I've secured eternity for you. My my departure, disciples, is for your advantage. Trust me, I am God and I am good. Is not infinite power and wisdom and goodness and beauty worth trusting? Who else are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the world? Are you going to trust your friends? Are you going to trust yourself? The last person I want to trust in this room is myself. The whole of Christianity is a life of faith and trust. And I want to encourage you that the object of that trust is the omnipotent, all-knowing, perfectly good and loving God of all. Were you to actually believe God and trust Him, all your troubles, cares and fears and worries fade away. And so He asks you to trust Him. And He will not, He cannot betray that trust. Heaven and earth, reality itself is upheld by him. Do we really dare to distrust him? This God? Look to heaven. Look to home and trust the one who can and will get you there and who can sustain you through whatever it is that you face in this life on the way. I know it's not easy, but it really is that simple. Trust is the solution to all your trouble. Home is the hope in all your trouble. Trust in God. Trust also in Christ. We've got to stop. Let's let's pray. Father, easy to say. So much more difficult to do. And so we ask for your help now. We thank you that you have provided us infinite resources to find help and comfort in the midst of whatever trouble it is that you bring our way. Father, teach us to trust. Teach us how. Help us to learn how to use your word, how to pray your promises and and to rest in them and to rest in your Sovereignty, how to truly live and believe as if you are completely in control and completely good. And in every single detail of our lives, you are working to bring about infinite and eternal good for us, your children, that you love. Father, help us to trust you that you love us. 
Help us to look to the cross to see that love proven uh, so perfectly. Father, I do I pray. I don't want anything that I say. I don't want to minimize the hardships and the difficulties that so many face in this difficult life. But Father, I pray that for those in here who are facing it, I pray that they would, in your word, see that you take that trouble seriously, that you enter into that trouble in Christ, that you provide an amazing solution to that trouble, whatever it is, in Jesus. Father, teach us to be a people who trust in you and who love your word and who love one another well um, with that word and who face the troubles of this life together as a family. And Father, show us the infinite goodness and power that is available to us in Jesus Christ through your word, by your spirit, and help us to trust in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.